0: Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 12. Verses 49 to 59 will be our focus this evening in Luke 12. Uh, just as we were finishing Ecclesiastes 7 this morning, we're finishing Luke 12 this evening. And, and uh, as we have taken a couple of weeks off in Luke, we will spend just a few moments to re-engage our minds on what is going on, and then we'll dig into our new uh, content this evening. The title of the message, Distinction Unto Division. On the night of our Savior's birth, there was a group of shepherds outside of Bethlehem, the Bible says, abiding in the fields, watching over their sheep by night. Luke 2 records that while they were there, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, And then the heavens were filled with a host that cried, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. There is little doubt that our Lord came to bring peace on earth in the latter end. But prior to this peace, our Savior taught about a different outcome. Rather than peace, our Lord said that we should expect division. That the loyalty He was asking was one which could not be shared with others. So that to receive Christ was to place Him above every, uh, every other priority in our lives. And this reality will inevitably cause division. There are other forces, there are other people, there are other institutions upon this earth, which would demand, or at least expect, that we be loyal unto them. And this evening we're going to speak about this division. That Jesus Christ taught that as we live on this earth, there's coming a day when He will bring peace and there will be that peace and unity. But until then, we might expect that the distinction that Jesus calls us to live under would bring some division even among those that we would love. We'll turn our eyes first toward Jesus teaching His disciples, and then Jesus will turn His eyes outward toward the people and give them an important message. So necessarily this evening we begin with the context, particularly because it has been a couple of weeks since we've been in the text. Jesus is in the middle of a question which had been asked by the Apostle Peter in chapter 12, verse 41. Peter said unto him, the Bible says, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? In this verse, Peter is referencing the teaching of Jesus in verses 22 through 40, and likely more directly, Jesus's final words in verses 39 and 40, which say this. Jesus says, And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have washed and not had suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when ye think not. In those verses, Jesus warns that his return would be as a thief unknown to all. And so in the broader context, Jesus was calling them unto watchfulness, unto faithfulness, that they need to always be serving, always be be vigilant, that you can't just take a day off of being a good Christian, that you can't just take a day off of serving your Lord because you don't know if that day is the day that your Lord will come and you will be found lacking in your faithfulness. Now, as we talked about this, we had talked about the fact that uh, that that uh, a servant who is found lacking in faithfulness is not a servant who will be sent to hell, but a servant who will find the consequences of judgment to be very real, not, not unto hell, not unto eternal damnation. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you, you will go to heaven. But that there are other consequences on the day of judgment to which we should understand and be fearful of. So then Peter responds, as we read already in verse 41, Lord, do you speak just to us or do you speak to everybody? And Jesus gives a little bit of a non-answer that we studied together last time. He said that the wise steward is faithful to his master regardless. By this, Jesus was effectively saying, Peter, don't worry about whether it's about you or about others. You just make sure that you're right with God. You just make sure that you are being faithful. Don't worry about how far the teaching extends But you should believe that I could come at any time, I could return at any time, and every generation should believe this. And with this came a warning, as we mentioned, that the servant who is not faithful would be found to fall short. And so would receive what Jesus calls many stripes. And we identified this as suffering great loss on the day of judgment. Say, Pastor, I don't really understand all of that. I I don't remember that or I I wasn't here for that. Well, I encourage you to go back and listen to that last message and understand what was being said there. So it was that our Lord ended with this direct warning found in the yellow here on the screen. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. And that's the direct context into which we jump this evening in verse 49 where the text says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? Jesus is still very much in this context. The the concept of fire in the scriptures is one that correlates primarily to two distinct concepts. The first being refinement The second being judgment. So as you're reading through the scriptures and you find the concept of fire, obviously fire could be used literally. Such as when Gideon had the torches and the pots and they had the torches of fire. That's literal fire, right? That's something that you light and it it burns. But when the when the concept of fire is used spiritually or fire is used metaphorically in scripture, it's speaking of the process of refining the believer or judging someone, whether that's believer or unbeliever. Uh, Refinement is a process that takes place in the lives of those in whom God is pleased. It's the act of breaking our will, of burning away sinful impurities, of making us better servants of God. Job spoke of this refinement process in Job 23 verses 8 through 10. He said, Behold, I go forward, but he, that's God, is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The idea of being tried and coming forth as gold is the process that we call today um, a a process of refining the the gold where... um, It's called smelting where you would take the gold and you would melt it down. And as you melt it down, the impurities rise to the top and you take those impurities uh, off and there is a purer gold. And Job uses that analogy and he says that I'm going through the fire right now, the fires of God's refinement. But I know this, that when God has finished with me, I will be more pure for what I have gone through. I will come forth as gold. It's not a fun process, but it's a process that God's people go through. It's a process that Jesus described in John 15:1 and 2 this way. He said, "I am the true vine and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, okay? So, he's saying if if you are connected to him and you're not bearing fruit, you're then you're not abiding and you're removed from fellowship with the Lord. This is not, again, this is not losing salvation. This is just being removed from the power that comes through the Spirit of God. But then notice what he says. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So then he says, and if you, if you bear fruit, you're going to be purged. Isn't it interesting that when you prune back a tree or a flower or a plant, you're not just cutting off dead stuff, are you? to prune back a plant in order that it can bear more fruit, you're you're, you're cutting off fruitful stuff. You're cutting off the live stuff. So the process of purging us is that when you're doing right and you're serving the Lord, don't be surprised when there's a purging process that happens. When God says you're doing really well and that means you can do better. And so he pushes you harder. So he he purges you a little bit. So he puts you through tests and trials in order to bring you to the next level in your Christian walk. If you've ever had a good teacher, then they've done this. That if you've gotten to the point where you have excelled and you've got a a, a really good grade or you've excelled in what you're doing, they're going to push you to the next level. And that's no fun because once you get to the top, you say, now I can coast, right? I get it. And they say, no, uh. If if they're a good teacher, they're going to push you to the next level. They're going to they're stretch you a bit farther. They're going to make it hard on you again to bring you to that next point, to, to grow you farther, to grow you better. And that's the process that God uses in the lives of those with whom he's pleased. It's called refinement. Those who do not bear fruit, the Bible says he taketh away, that there is a judgment, that they are severed from the abundance of Christ. Jesus describes this judgment in John 15, 6. He says, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men men gather gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Again, this does not mean, according to our interpretation, hell, but rather the fires of judgment. Judgment. A general state of uselessness for the cause of Christ where God is judging the believer by removing him from fellowship with God. And indeed we know that the the concept of fire is used all throughout scripture to speak of judgment. It's used to speak of judgment of believers. It's used to speak of judgment on our works. In 1 Corinthians, the Bible describes the wood, hay, and stubble, the gold, silver, and precious stones that make up the works of a believer. And Paul says that the fire of God's judgment will fall upon that pile and that the only thing left will be the things that we've done for Christ and that everything else will be suffering loss. Yet we will be saved. Yes, so as by fire. However, we do understand as well that eternal judgment... Is a fiery judgment. That to those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, to those whose names are not written in the Book of Life, they will be, they will experience what's called the second death. They will be cast into the Lake of Fire. Three times in Mark 9, verses 43, 45, and 48, Jesus describes the Lake of Fire as a place where the fire is never quenched. The place called Gehenna in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the ultimate spiritual judgment upon the unbelieving world. But while there will be an eternal burning for the unbeliever, the Bible teaches us that on the day of judgment, a time when all the works of men, unbelievers and believers alike, will be judged... They'll be judged by fire. So what we're doing here is we're establishing this reality. The reality that the judgment of God is often seen as fire. And this is going to help us as we jump back into our context. I mentioned already 1 Corinthians 3 verses 13 to 15. I'd like to introduce you now to another passage of Scripture which is not just important but I believe it's essential. And before I do so, let's go back to what we have read in Luke 12. I feel like this message is a little bit poorly timed because there's been such a gap since I last preached in Luke 12. But in Luke chapter 12 verses 39 to 40, remember the Bible said this, and this know, we read it uh, already, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Now I'm going to jump to our text tonight to verse 49. Jesus says, I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I If it be already kindled. So remember that all of this teaching by Jesus is the same conversation, right? This conversation began quite a few verses back. In verses 39 and 40, he said, I'm coming uh, again and you need to be ready for my imminent return. Comparing himself to a thief in the night. In verse 49, he speaks of the reality that he will judge the earth and the men upon it in fire one day. Now, with all of this context in mind, consider with me Peter's writings in 2 Peter 3, verses 9 through 12. Peter writes this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night There is a 100% chance, no doubt, that Peter's mind, when he was writing 2 Peter chapter 3, rested on his conversation with Jesus in Luke chapter 12. Remember, it was Peter that asked the question, Lord, are you speaking to us or to another? And Jesus said, you just be ready because I'm coming and I will judge the world. And you need to be ready for it. And then Peter writes these words and he says, the Lord is coming. And notice he uses the exact same analogy that Jesus used in Luke 12. The Lord will come as a thief in the night. And when he comes, he will melt the earth with a fervent heat. All of this will be dissolved. And then he says, by the way, if he's going to do this, then he continues in verses 13 and 14. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may fa- be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Peter took these words to heart, and he said, the Lord could come at any moment, and when he comes, there will be fire, there will be judgment, He will dissolve the world world with a fervent heat. So what should we do? We should be found blameless before him all the time be ready all the time look towards the heavens all the time because he's coming and he'll make a new heavens and he'll make a new earth and the old earth will pass away and it's going to be a fire by judgment when he comes as a thief in the night and all of this is what Jesus was teaching in Luke 12 so he said I'm coming as a thief in the night Peter said are you speaking just to us or to everyone Jesus said don't worry about that Peter just be ready to go And then he said, I'm coming to send fire to the earth. I'm coming to melt the earth with a fervent heat and to judge the world, to judge the world, to judge the works of men, to separate the believer from the unbeliever. It's all going to happen. He says, this is what I'm called to do. And that's what he's telling them in Luke 12, verse 49. And then notice what he says. He says this, and what will I, if it be already kindled? The phrase is a little bit confusing, but it's made much more clear by what Jesus continues to say in verse 50. From this context, it appears, if I were just to read verse 49, and what will I if if it is already kindled? It appears that Jesus is saying, look, my end goal is to judge the earth, and if if it were completely up to me, I would just as soon do it now than to wait. Let me just judge the world right now. Let me just call down fire from heaven right now. That would appear to be from just verse 49 what this is saying. But notice what Jesus then says in verse 50. He says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Jesus says, I could judge the earth right now, but I won't yet. Because there's still something to be done. And Jesus calls this work his baptism. The word baptism in the Bible describes a rite of passage. A set of events which serve to initiate a person into an identity. The Red Sea crossing is called a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Obviously, in that baptism, the Jews didn't get wet. As a matter of fact, the point of them crossing the Red Sea is one of the points is that they never got wet, right? They walked across on dry ground. The water created a wall on either side. They didn't get wet. But it was through this event of the Red Sea crossing that the nation was initiated into being God's people that that's really when they became a nation so it was their baptism into becoming a nation those who went through the Red Sea trusted God to preserve them from the water's destruction and so they were redeemed by this faith this was their initiation into God this is when they were given a new identity it was their baptism The Holy Spirit baptism is our initiation into Christ. We read about that in uh, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. This describes our Holy Spirit baptism. That's the moment where when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God comes into us that we die to self and we're made alive unto Christ. We are buried with Him that God judicially buries us with Christ and gives us eternal life by raising us spiritually from the dead. That's the moment of our initiation into the new idea. Identity that is in Christ. Water baptism is, a, is an initiation as well. It's an initiation into the function of the local church. At the moment of our water baptism, we are publicly identifying with God with His people, and so we are initiated into this identity as a part of God's church. This is why we ask people to be baptized before they can become members. This is why we ask people to be baptized before they partake in communion with us. Because you are publicly identifying yourself with God's church by this water baptism. It is an initiation into the church. And Jesus had a baptism of his own. His baptism was his death His burial and his resurrection for it was through his finished work that Jesus would be initiated into his authority and his right to rule. It was at his death, burial and resurrection that Jesus was baptized into his right to claim the throne into his right to give us eternal life. If he had not died on the cross, been buried and rose again the third day, then he would have no right to save us. He would have no right to give us eternal life because that process, that death, burial and resurrection was his baptism, his initiation into his right to rule. Indeed, the Bible tells us that the day of Jesus's resurrection was the day that he actually became The son of God earned the title, the son of God, so that when in our King James Bible, Jesus is called the only begotten son of God, that word begotten, implying a process of being created that what that is telling us is that there was a moment in history it's not that Jesus Christ is a created being indeed Jesus Christ is an eternal being but there was a moment when he became the begotten son of God where he was made the son of God as a title of our redemption Jesus alone is the son of God though he carried this title since the foundation of the world he earned that title on the day of his resurrection we dare not simply translate only begotten to mean one and only as many of the modern translations do because in doing so we sacrifice an important biblical truth on the altar of the field fear, uh, of the altar of fear that somebody might think that Jesus is a created being because they see him as the begotten son of God but rather the bible says that Jesus earned the title son of God and though he carried the title with him even before he earned it, it was earned on the day of his resurrection. I just want to prove that to you real quick before we move on. The concept of the of Messiah being the Son of God is established in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. The Bible says, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. This this is well understood to be a messianic passage. That this passage is speaking of the Messiah. That when he would come, he would be the son of God and that he would have the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. That he will one day rule and reign. But notice the Bible says that there would be a certain day where God would declare, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So this is not saying, again, this is not saying that Messiah would be a created being, because the Bible says that he is God. This is saying that there was a day when he would be declared to be the Son of God, when he would be made the Son of God, where he would assume that position and that title. Well, the question becomes, what day is being spoken of here? What is the day in which the Messiah would be begotten as the Son of God? And for this answer, we turn to Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. And he preached as he preached them, he described this in verses 31 to 33. The Bible says, And he was seen, this is speaking of Jesus, And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Did you see this? Paul says the day that he raised his only begotten son from the dead, his only begotten son became his only begotten son. Before that, he was called the only begotten son, and that's fine. Because the Bible says in Revelation that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, right? So even before the earth was created, Jesus, there was a point in history that God knew where Jesus would sacrifice himself and he would rise from the dead. So he was called the son of God, and that's fine. But when did he earn the title? When was he actually begotten? The day of his resurrection. Acts 13 makes it clear. Thou art my beloved son, this day, the day he rose from the dead, I have begotten thee. On that day, he was given the name which is above every name. On that day is the day that Philippians 2, verse 8 and 9 came to pass. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. What is the name? The name is the only begotten Son of God. He has a title. He is God's Son. This was the baptism into which Jesus was baptized. His finished work. He says, I would bring fire down from heaven. I would judge the world, but I can't do it yet. Because there's something that needs to happen first. Jesus says he cannot yet judge the earth, though perhaps he would. Because he must first be baptized into death and raised to walk in newness of life. And so Jesus says that until this is accomplished, he is straightened. That word in the Greek literally meaning to be pressed or to be compelled or to be constrained. And it's this last idea that I believe is closest to what what Jesus is saying. That Jesus cannot bring fiery judgment and will not bring fiery judgment upon this earth until such time as his work is accomplished and then the Father decrees it to take place. He's constrained. He cannot do it yet. Because God has mercy and grace yet to offer. And so with this important foundation laid to Jesus' purpose, he then asks a question in verse 51. He says, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. Jesus asks them, and take note that we have the plural pronoun here, ye. He's speaking to the group, not, not to Peter, but to the group. This is one of the benefits of our King James Version. That when you see thee, thou, thine, you know that one person is being spoken to. When you see ye, your, you know that a, a multiple, uh, multiples of people are being spoken to. And so we ask, do you suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth? Well, seeing that one of his titles in Isaiah 9 is the Prince of Peace, we would assume that Jesus is coming to bring peace on earth, right? And make no mistake, he is the Prince of Peace. But Jesus' kingdom of peace is not yet come. At the moment, Jesus has not called them to be a part of his kingdom of peace. At the moment, Jesus is calling them unto dedicated service. And it is now time for them to understand that what he is asking of them is not just to make him their master, but rather he's asking them to make him their absolute top priority, to make him their Lord even at the expense of every other priority in their lives Jesus seeks to fundamentally change their priorities and their thinking he says I don't come to give peace this time around this time around I'm coming to bring division and he describes this division in verses 52 and 53 he says from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided three against two and two against three The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother and the mother in law against her daughter in law and the daughter in law against her mother in law. Jesus says from now on, families will be divided. And he highlights the relationships, father, son, mother, daughter in laws and Jesus point. Here is not that he's encouraging bad relationships. He's not telling you once you accept Jesus Christ as your savior. Then you can start to hate your family. Or that you should hate your family. He's not saying that. Rather he's saying that if you and I place our loyalties. Upon the words of Jesus Christ. Above anything and everything else. Then there are going to be times in your life. Where you have to choose between loyalty to others and loyalty to Christ. Young people, if you have chosen to make Jesus Christ your Savior and your Master, your Lord, if you have chosen to make Jesus Christ your number one priority, which you should, then there are going to be times, there are going to be times in, in perhaps family, depending on your family and, and, and such, there's going to be times with your friends. There's going to be times in school. There's going to be times at work as you get older. There's going to be times where you have to make choices between God and popularity, between God and friends, between God and family, between God and the world. Jesus says this is a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you're going to be a faithful servant, one whose loins are girded, whose candle is lit, as Jesus talked about earlier in Luke 12 then you will rest under divine obligation 24 hours a day, 365 days per year. And if you are this, then every opinion must be under the opinion of your master. Every priority must be under the priority of your master. Every loyalty must be under the loyalty that you have to your master. And this, simply put... Is not easy for everyone to understand. It isn't easy for an unbelieving father or mother or for a father or mother who isn't on the same page as you biblically to understand when you reject their worldview in order to follow Christ. It isn't easy for an unbelieving son or daughter to understand when you as a parent deny them worldly pleasures for the sake of Christ. It isn't easy for an unbelieving in-law to appreciate your thoughts and decisions when you put Jesus Christ above all else. It isn't easy for an unbelieving government to appreciate the actions and desires of those who hold Christ's commands above theirs. It isn't easy for an unbelieving friend or an unbelieving employer To understand men and women who place the expectations of Christ, their Lord, above those of their employer or above those of their friends. Friends want loyalty. Employers want loyalty. The government wants loyalty. Parents want loyalty. Children want loyalty. And it's not easy when we have to come to a point where those loyalties with the ones that we love or the ones with whom we interact clashes with our loyalty to Christ. But Jesus said, expect it. Expect that it's going to come. And this is what Jesus asks of us. He asks of us to be ready and willing to place our loyalty to Christ above our loyalty to the things and the people on this earth. This is the price that Jesus has asked His followers to be willing to pay. And the natural question then is this. Are you willing to pay that price? Have you chosen already to pay that price? Have you made the decision that even at the risk of division, you will follow Christ the Lord wherever His word asks you to go? A few more verses here before we apply. Jesus then turns his attention beyond his disciples and unto the people who are following him. So Jesus disciples are with him, and then the people are following him still. and in verse fifty seven we pick up through verse fifty nine and the Bible says, "Yea." And why even of yourselves, judging not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him. Lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison, I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence, till thou hast paid the very last mite. Jesus' final warning here is a warning to be reconciled unto him. And we're actually going to teach this next week. I'm going to teach this content next week. Uh, we're going to begin a two-part. Uh, no, excuse me, we're not. Uh, but we're going to begin in, uh, Luke 13 next week. And I'm going to teach this with Luke 13, but I'd like us to use these verses to gain some context. Within this chapter, Jesus has taught of judgment, of choices, and of consequences. Throughout this chapter, we have seen conversation leapfrog between Jesus and his disciples, and then Jesus and the people. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus and his disciples are speaking regarding hypocrisy. In verses 13 through 21, Jesus is speaking to the people regarding covetousness. In verses 22 through 53, Jesus is speaking to his disciples regarding faithfulness. And, um, oh, I skipped a couple verses here. That's why I thought there's something off here. I skipped verses um, 54 through 56. Let me read those. Um Let me read verses 54 to 59 here to clean this up a little bit. And he said unto the people, so he turns his mind to the people again, right? And he says unto the people, when ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern the time? Yea, and why, even of yourselves, judge ye not what is right? Then he says, When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. So in verses 54 through 59, Jesus turns his mind back to the people, and he tells the people, Likely picking up to some degree uh, the, on the very same thought that he finished in verse 21, where he was talking to them last. He says, look, you can discern the skies. You know when, when clouds are coming. You know when the south wind's blowing. You can discern the times and the seasons. But you don't know what's right. He's warned them about covetousness. He's warned them about loving this world. And now he says, you need to be reconciled to me because there's coming a day of judgment. And again, as I mentioned, I'll teach this next week. But he's telling them, you need to be reconciled to me because we are on our way to the judge. And if we get to the judge, then you will be judged. So be reconciled with me while we're along the way so that we don't have to make it to the judge. Discern the times and the seasons. Understand what is coming. And guard yourself. We'll explain more of that next time. Let's apply this evening. I simply want to ask a question. Ask a question of you. And the question is this. Whose opinion matters most to you? The legacy of believers in every generation has been a legacy of holding God's commands and opinions above everyone else's. This doesn't mean we're always successful in obedience and in devotion. But it does mean we never fool ourselves into thinking that something else is or ought to be more important to us than God. We could go to many passages to prove this. We could go to Mordecai and Esther. Where Esther would not, where Mordecai would not bow before Prince Haman because he would not bow before anyone but God. And then Esther, at the very risk of her life, chose to do what God had called her to do. We could consider the legacy of Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, who when they were commanded to no longer speak in the name of Jesus Christ told the council, we ought to obey God rather than men. But perhaps the best enduring testimony of this way of thinking is found in Hebrews 11. And I would like to close this evening by reading a considerable portion of Hebrews 11 and then considering it together. In Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, the Bible says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him of good, as good as dead, So many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they say such things, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, And he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. According that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. uh, Excuse me, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. From whence also he received him in a figure. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped. Leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches. Then the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians essayed to do were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. After they were compassed about seven days by faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in the fight, turned the flame of the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourges. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered in sheepskins and in goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. I read a large portion of scripture tonight to this end. This is the legacy for which we strive. We strive to be among those who strove themselves not for earthly goods, not for the acceptance of your friends or your family or your government or your employer, but rather those who saw a better country, who lived their ideals and the rules of a better country, whose builder and maker is God, those who sought with all their might. The blessings of the divine promise and who would yield anything that this world has to offer for the spiritual reality to be found in them. Notice with me that these are not necessarily men of impeccable moral character. Even after their faith. Abraham left the land of promise to go to Egypt as did Isaac. Jacob left the land of promise for Haran. Moses contended with the Lord about being used. Rahab was a pagan harlot. Gideon was approached by God hiding in the threshing floor. Samson was a man of selfishness and debauchery until the final moments of his life. Barak was afraid to do the will of God, so much so that the prophetess Deborah had to be at his side. Jephthah made a rash vow and was compelled to sacrifice his daughter. The legacy of the faithful is not a legacy of the perfect. It is a legacy of those who, through thoroughly imperfect Means, Though thoroughly imperfect in any number of ways, when they heard the voice of God calling them to do, they did. As Jesus would describe in John 10, when they heard the voice of the shepherd, they followed the voice. They may have followed imperfectly. They may have fallen into a few ditches. They may have broken their ankles on a few ruts, but they followed. Many of these had serious moral issues, even to their dying day. But through all of their imperfections and all of their flaws, they believed that there was a heavenly country where God abode. And they wanted to be with him and they wanted him to be pleased. And so they sought for that country. And they sought sacrificially. And as for this faith, Hebrews eleven sixteen 16 tells us that God was not ashamed to be called their God. Think about that statement with me for a moment. God was not ashamed to be called Abraham's God, Sarah's God. God was not ashamed to be called Jacob's God. God was not ashamed to be called Samson's God or Barak's God or Jephthah's God. And brethren... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are seeking a heavenly country and so you yield your rights and priorities in this life on the altar of the promises that God has made by faith, even through your many imperfections, even though you don't always do a good job, even though you have character flaws, God is not ashamed to be called your God. And I want you to think about that. God is not ashamed of you. If you have placed Christ at the head of the table. Perhaps as a believer, you're going through life with guilt right now. You're looking around you, comparing yourself to other Christians, feeling that you'll never measure up. Now, I'm not here today to try to assuage the conviction of the Holy Spirit about imperfections in your life, which you're aware of, but you're just too lazy, selfish, or faithless to correct. God forbid anyone should leave here today determined to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit through my words. But along the same line of thinking, you need to understand that God doesn't need you to be perfect in order for you to be accepted. God doesn't need you to be perfect in order to be accepted because God has already made you perfect in Jesus Christ. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, His righteousness rests upon you so that God is not ashamed to be called your God because you are in Christ. Not because you have all of your spiritual ducks in a row, but because you have sought for that heavenly country and received it by faith. You've embraced the promise. You are convinced that what Jesus promised, He is able also to perform. And if that is you then God is not ashamed to be called your God. And this should free you not to rest on your moral imperfections of which you ought to be ashamed, but rather to pursue their elimination through obedience and sanctification without the guilt of feeling like you're not measuring up. By faith, you have desired a better country. Now have the faith to invest in that better country. May I say that again? If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then by faith, you have sought for the better country. You have desired the better country. Now have the faith to invest in it. And this investment might mean division. Abraham was divided from his family and his country to seek by faith a better country. Moses was divided from his government and privilege to seek by faith a better country. He was in the halls of the king of Egypt and he was severed from it to seek by faith the country of God. Rahab was divided from her culture, was divided from her national identity. She was a Canaaniteish harlot. She was divided from who she was in order to seek by faith the better country. But the reproach which came by following the shepherd was worth the division that it caused. Now, thank God there are many among us whose determinations to walk by faith have not caused you to have to lose your family and your friends. If you've got godly family, if you've got godly friends, then you can walk by faith without being divided from them. And thank God for that. That what Christ has asked you to do has not come in conflict with some of these relationships. But are you invested in the reality this evening that it might, that your loyalty to Christ might someday have to divide you from a friend or from a family member? That what Christ has asked you to do might come in conflict with something that an earthly friend, family, or authority would ask you to do? And on that day... Are you invested in the determination that you will esteem the reproaches of Christ of greater treasure, riches than the treasures of this world? On the day where your friend says, you will do this, or you're not my friend anymore. On the day where you say, oh, I will either do this sin, or I will lose esteem in the eyes of others, friends, I will either uh, make this decision or my parents will want nothing to do with me or they will begin to be fearful that I've become uh, some stranger to them or I will have to distance myself from them because of the way they're acting. On the day where you have to make those hard decisions, are you ready to make them? Because it's what Jesus asks of you. It's our privilege That on the day reproach comes Reproach in the name of Christ From our government From friends From family From husband From wife From child It's our privilege to refuse deliverance That we might obtain a better resurrection And so my question to you is How are you doing this evening? Jesus said I have come to divide I have come to divide Father against son Mother against daughter mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. It is quite possible that in your days, the decisions that you need to make for Christ will cause rifts in relationships. Jesus came the first time not to bring worldwide peace. He came to bring peace in your heart. But then he came to bring a division between those who believe and those who don't. He will bring peace to this world. He has brought peace to our hearts. And the peace that he's brought to us already calls upon each of us to be willing to suffer the losses which might afflict us in this life if only we might find the riches of the life to come. How are you doing? Are you living this sacrifice? Is your candle lit? Are your loins girt? Are you watching for your master to come? Are you ready at any moment because he could come as a thief in the night? Are you determined that you will be his servant? Even at the cost of that friend. Even at the cost of that job. Even at the cost of... Fill in the blank. Whatever it might be. Are you determined? Are you ready? To make that sacrifice for Christ. He's asking us to do it. May God help us to be ready and willing. To be what He has us to be. Let's pray.